0: Douglas, yeah. (laughs) Ha ha, hello, hello, you sunbeams of wonder. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to experience your shine and shimmer. Thank you for joining me here. You are hanging with Mr. Douglas. Mr. Douglas is me. I'm Mr. Douglas, and you're hanging with me, so it's great to have you here. We're hanging together, and we're back in the swing with Ingo Swan's Psychic Sexuality Part 2. I hope you're all well. Amidst the speedy tumult, We as individuals are empowering ourselves so that we may make our world and thereby make everybody's world just a little bit better than it was the day before. Onward, inward, and upward. Part two, coming at you, let's get to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well then, away we go. Alright, it's great to be back. Let's do this. This information's too good. I'm really enjoying it. It's about time anyway. Bro, I was thinking about that Reichenbach guy the entire time. dropping right back into the late 1800s in our historical jaunt through the history of the study of psi, psi, magnetism, aether, ether, chi, prana, ki, hadouken, orgone, reiki, universal life force, that oh so intrinsic energy that seems to be a part of everything, that everything kind of blossoms from and seems to most readily express itself through our sexuality. Yeah, yeah, right. No, I get it. I start to understand it. Is it just a sexuality, though? Uh, Not just the sexuality. It's not just sex. But that seems to be a major keyhole for this energy to shine through. And we are the key. So, Edward William Cox, right? Late 1800s. He wrote a book, 1871, entitled The Scientific Theory of Psychic Force. Now this book put together some major characteristics of said force and Ingo Swan brings into a kind of modern dialogue a more colloquial way of wrapping our minds around this stuff all the more we start with number 1 quote there is a force proceeding from or directly associated with the human organization um do you mean like a group or something uh which as Ingo is telling us here uh, you can replace organization with organism oh. Right. Okay. Got it? Yeah, that was weird. Thanks for asking. Body structure, uh, plus its animating energies. Numero dos, in certain persons and under certain conditions, this force can cause vibrations or motion in heavy bodies, such as furniture, other bodies, etc. Not pretty useful on moving day. <laughs> external to that person emanating that force. The force can also produce audible and palpable sounds in such bodies. Number three, the force does this without muscular contact or any material connection between any person, place, or thing, any noun whatsoever. Four, this force appears to be frequently directed by some intelligence. Five, for reasons to be specified, We conclude that this force is generated in certain persons of peculiar nervous organization. What does he mean by peculiar? Uh, Yeah. I'm curious. More like, you know, particular nervous organization. Uh, Okay. Insufficient power to operate beyond bodily contact. More people are more inclined, more so than others. That makes sense. Not everybody is immediately inclined to be an Olympic swimmer or pole vaulter. There aren't many of us that wake up some day and go, you know, I'd like to fish as a profession. And yet some of us have got quite the knack for these things. Okay, number six, there can be little doubt that the force is possessed by every human being, that it is a necessary, and that's emphasized by Ingo Swan. so let's re-emphasize, it is a necessary condition of the living nerve, if indeed it be not the vital force itself. So if it's not the force directly that we're operating with, then it is a condition of our organization, our organism, our setup as a being being a human being. Number seven, in ordinary persons, it ceases to operate at or near the extremities of the nerves. In psychics, it flows beyond them in waves of varying volume and power. At this point, in this phenomenological lineup that Edward William Cox has put together for us here, and Ingo Swan is breaking down oh so more understandably, Cox refers to a Dr. Richardson who also has been examining psychic force and whom had presented his findings in popular science review. He and another researcher, apparently also named Richardson, contends that there is a nerve fluid or ether with which the nerves are enveloped, and by whose help it is that the motion of their molecules communicates sensations and transmits the commands of the will. Number nine, this nerve either is, he thinks, one of the Richardsons, no other than the vital force, so not a nerve at all. It extends with all of us somewhat beyond the extremities of the nerve structure. Sounds like an aura and even beyond the surface of the body, encompassing us wholly within an envelope of nerve, of atmosphere, and which uh, varies in its depth and intensity in various persons. This Richardson contends will solve many difficult problems in physiology and throw a new light on many obscurities in psychology and mental philosophy. It might be noted here that the many obscurities Uh, still remain obscured, at least to us in the mainstream. Although I would argue that to us, we are slowly peering beyond the curtain. Number 10, the force exists itself in pulsations or undulations. It's never steadily continuous. It's not a beam, it's a wave. Interesting. However, the tremors caused by the force in a table, a chair, floor, or in organic bodies are linked to the waves of light or sound. Okay. 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 Uh, this guy, he's he definitely looking into it a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm putting it together. Yeah, I, I, I'm with it. What are we on? Eleven? Uh, yeah. Yes. Okay. So, number eleven. The differences of the sensation between the operation of the psychic force and of the muscular force is also manifest as to be palpable instantly to everybody who witnesses or experiences it. Now, this is trippy. We talked about this briefly in our last episode, but in the um, spiritualist movement in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s here in the States, people who were experiencing genuine mediums, genuine psychics, intuitives, people who would bring people over and be like, yo, I'm doing this stuff, check it out, they could all, boom, instantly feel it, and it was unmistakable. It was a sensation like no other. So, the, uh, and this is number 12, the strength or power of the force is conditional upon the mental and emotional status of the individual and individuals involved. The force is sometimes, but rarely exhibited when the psychic is alone, As a rule, the presence of other persons promotes the operations of the force. Number 13. The force is materially influenced by the electric and magnetic conditions of the atmosphere and of surrounding bodies, by heat and cold, by moisture and dryness, and still more by the nervous condition of the persons present. You could say, uh, replace nervous conditions with uh, individual dispositions, I guess. Oh, that makes Uh, sense, uh, okay, okay. I get it, so much better, Uh. Hmm, now that makes sense. Dispositions! Don't be an a-hole, you'll experience universal energy. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. Number 14, as will be examined in the following chapter, characteristics of the force can be perceived by a variety of clairvoyant means. But if the manifestations of the force are powerful enough, They can be witnessed by normal perceptions. Exposure to the manifestations sometimes temporarily increases the clairvoyant faculties of individuals in their proximity, faculties which otherwise lay dormant. And before we hit the uh, next one, the number 15, I have to mention that a common theme when it comes to interactions with non human intelligence, what may be perceived at least initially as space dudes. Grays, you know what I'm talking about, the nordics, anything uh, alien, sometimes involving uh, some kind of craft, is that there is this uh, residual psychic kind of rub off static electricity cling to you for a couple of days effect where post exposure, post experience, post abduction contact, post interaction, whatever kind of interaction good or bad, there seems to be um a pretty regular reporting that intuitive and other kinds of subtle psychic forces that we carry innate within us uh, are, are activated, amplified, and uh, sometimes to the point of being quite disruptive in someone's life because they're able to hear what other people are thinking around them and understand what's kind of coming down around the corner. You know, stop at the stoplight. Don't go to work that day. Maybe I really should watch Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade one more time. Genius. Whatever it is. There definitely seems to be a very common correlation between exposure to an entity that has heightened or cultivated psi abilities. And when you are in proximity or in experience with that individual, it tends to have a rub-off effect on you. And that really makes me think more about how that kind of contagion effect works throughout the human race. Crowds go nutso when they're kind of cajoled and prodded into mania or 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 severe irritation. Conversely, when something is funny and a couple of people find it funny, well a couple more people might find it funny and then a couple of people after them might just find that that laughter that they just heard was funny, but then they think that it's actually kind of a good time and a good environment and there's this ripple effect that happens with us with a lot of different stuff, not just psi abilities. So That actually may be a part of our programming, a part of our makeup, in that we have the ability, very much how like mirror neurons work, where we are able to see an experience happening before us, like a basketball game. And this amazing dunk just goes down and your body goes, whoa, you can, in some semblance, feel a sympathetic feeling to what it would feel like to do that massive dunk. It's why TV works so great. It's why we love watching others go through trials and travails and triumph because we ourselves can resonate with that and go, yeah, me too. But how deep does that shared sensation go? It seems to go pretty deep uh, to the point where if someone's using their psychic powers around you, you, in effect, are going to have your own system shake off the dust and recognize within yourself, hey, I got that too. To the point where it might not even be under conscious uh, control or manipulation. It just starts to turn on, you know. That's pretty cool. For better or worse, it seems like it's inevitable that the more we expose ourselves to this kind of activity, this material, this bandwidth of ability that we all have within ourselves, the more it will sympathetically resonate in the positive to awaken. Now, I'm all about that. Yet another reason why we're here, hanging with Mr. Douglas. (laughs) Gives a whole new meaning to the company you keep. Pretty frequently, people who have experiences with non-human intelligence come back and have that exact description, that exposure to these manifestations temporarily increases their clairvoyant faculties. It's like psychic ability rubs off and hangs around them for a little while. Very interesting. That's that's actually pretty well-cited and documented. That's regular. And this was 1871. Still going strong. Number 15. The attention of the psychic regarding manifestations of the force is not necessary. This is suggestive that the manifestations of the force arise from an unconscious action of the brain, the ganglion or the nerves. This is all from page 104 to 106. Now, that's very interesting. It's not so much about our conscious attention, but an unconscious action of the brain. Maybe unconscious attention? Uh, And how does the unconscious become directed in any particular way to then be witnessed as some kind of coherent response to uh, a situation that is understood consciously, like, yes, I'm going to perform some kind of clairvoyant ability or drum up some ectoplasm, talk to a dead dude, something like that. Interesting that in 1871, it was viewed that this isn't normal everyday consciousness activity. This has something to do with our unconscious, our deeper, more true self. Ah, I don't know about true, but our deeper primal I say true because more often than not, within our unconscious, we refer to uh, our inner self and how our inner self, our inner child, isn't going to be a liar. It knows exactly what we want. And if it doesn't get some kind of modicum of it, it's going to act out. And I was a rebel. I was a little terror as a kid, you know, in my own way. So when my inner child doesn't get what it wants, well, You should hear what I say when I'm in the car alone in traffic. Moving on, quote, in more contemporary terms, unconscious cerebration, it's a fun word for saying unconscious thinking, unconscious mental machination, the unconscious action of the brain mentioned in 15, brain, quote unquote, is probably equivalent to the pre-conscious processes that take place in the subconscious before emerging into consciousness or mental perception indeed in some fashion sensory systems organize data before it is forwarded to the conscious intellect in this sense then unconscious cerebration can be thought of as a type of intelligence functioning beneath conscious awareness unquote page number 107 like riding a bike or driving a car sleepwalking eating potato chips while you're watching the tv or any other activity that you've done enough that you don't actively think about it. Now, there are massive similarities to Qigong and Qi and Qi, and now uh, um, mentioning Anton Mesmer, the father of mesmerism, of hypnosis, or at least what we call it. Reichenbach, last episode. Cox and Reich, also last episode. This is what they were all working with, right? It's that universal life energy principle all referenced in one way or another, all these are referenced as a vital force or fluid. Now, Ingo goes on to break it down a little bit more and mention that clairvoyance is uh, more aptly named a kind of second sight. Clairvoyance, French word, does mean clear seeing, uh, but other ways to understand clairvoyance and other ways that clairvoyance has, uh, in one way or another, expressed itself, or more aptly, its second sight, uh, is a a kind of perception of the past or perceptions of the future, envisioning past lives, getting that deja vu flash, perception of contemporary events happening at a distance, remote viewing, or outside the range of normal vision, right? X-ray vision, seeing through stuff, traveling clairvoyance, OBEs, remote viewing, medical clairvoyance, Which, uh, as we go through this, we'll talk about. Ingo has an incredibly intense and uh, meaningful experience where he actually has a kind of medical clairvoyance. Uh, Platform clairvoyance, this is another one. The older version of seeing spirits during a near-death experience. And really, the near-death experience itself. Macro clairvoyance. Being able to see space or other big objects. Micro clairvoyance. Zooming in to the very tiny. And we discussed this uh, a couple episodes back. Annie Besant, Leadbeater, they have that book all about microclairvoyance, where they viewed molecules before we had an electron microscope. Turns out the pictures match up pretty close. Hypnotic and trance clairvoyance. Ecstasy clairvoyance. Psychometric clairvoyance. Mixtures of clairvoyance and telepathy. Telesthesia clairvoyance. And that list is from 112. It's a great book. Highly recommend you follow along. And uh, yes, here we go, referencing those two that I just mentioned. Quote: Microclairvoyance, a modern term, is one of the several super sentient faculties itemized in the very ancient seedy literature of the Indian subcontinent, known as knowledge of the small, the hidden, or the distant, by directing the light of superphysical faculty. It is not at all that clear why the clairvoyant duo Annie Besant and Charles Webster Leadbeater took an interest in microclairvoyance, but they set about working assiduously at this fabulous enterprise in order to clairvoyantly see and systematically describe the atomic and subatomic particles of all chemical substances in 1908. Now that right there makes my eyebrows go up. Where can I get this information? I see these pictures. They caused the. Theosophists to Publish Occult Chemistry, Clairvoyant Observations of the Chemical Elements. You can get this book on Amazon. Okay, sweet. Most theosophists then seem to have been completely bewildered by the voluminous book and its profusion of graphic illustrations of what molecular and atomic particles looked like. It was even revised and enlarged several times up until 1951. After the invention of the electron microscope, it could begin to be seen that the clairvoyant drawings of leadbeater and Besant of the atomic and subatomic particles of the elements corresponded almost exactly to what the electron microscopes revealed. Additionally, the clairvoyants had illustrated some elements which at the time were not known to exist, but later were discovered and had correctly identified their atomic structures. That, page 120-121, blew my mind when I read. This book is full of treasure. Putting it in my wish list. So this apparently was addressed again in a 1980 publication of the book Extrasensory Perception of Quarks by Stephen M. Phillips, an American physicist. Leadbeater and Besant identified quarks right down to their spin. I'd say we're a pretty powerful lot. Yeah, it makes you wonder. Yeah, bro. Like, how come we're not, like, all doing this, like, all the time? What would the world be like if we were all able to do that? It would definitely be a different world. Sure. So, okay, here we go. We're going back to ancient Greece now. We are here in ancient Greece. Welcome. There was a practice or concept known as cathexis, C A T H E X I S. Referring to the investment of libidinal energy in a person, object or idea. And this is pretty trippy because cathexis sounds a whole lot like how uh, I was first introduced by way of the Golden Dawn to making sigils where you do just that. You are reaching gnosis by investing your libidinal energy into your sigil. which is pretty trippy that it goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Another excerpt from this wonderful book, quote, in the sense used in this definition, investment referred to an outer layer or envelope, and which in terms of human energetics places us in proximity of the aura as the energy field that envelops the physical aspects of the body, the cathexis concept, giving name to a type of peak experiencing, what some might know as reaching gnosis, also draws close to the modern concept that sexual energies can be transmuted into creative ones. Albeit the nature of the transmuting steps between the sexual and the creative energies remain conspicuously ambiguous and absent so far. Another way of putting this though, as many have done, is to suggest that there can be connections between sexual orgasms and so-called psychic orgasms. It is helpful, though, to clarify these types of orgasm as sex energy orgasms and psychic force orgasm. Page 123. Unquote. I just listened to the most recent uh, THC, the Higher Side Chats episode with Greg Carlwood. He had on Jeffrey Kripel, and Jeff made it real clear. He said, Look, in my studies of understanding what all this is all about, it does have to do with, and they were talking about how. We have partitioned our minds apart so that the imagination, waking reality, dreams, the magical realms, all this stuff has been cut up and separated, right? Which he was saying, "Uh, I actually don't think that's the truth. I think that's the way we've evolved to survive because otherwise we might be overwhelmed and we got to eat. But he was basically saying that one of the ways that historically humans have been able to break down those barriers is via sex. And that, there's no other way to put it, sex isn't just about sex. It might just be a lock and key kind of situation to opening up ourselves to this kind of energy that we all have access to that more often than not lays dormant, latent, untouched, unrealized in a great many of us. But just, you know, interesting, here we go. There's a lot of consistency out there. Now, Leadbeater was apparently doing this in the early 1900s in the Theosophical Society, right? This might have been one of the ways his clairvoyance or his second sight was strong enough to see and even illustrate all those particles in such detail. I might reference it later in my breakdown here, um, but within the book he does talk about Theosophical Society and how Leadbeater actually was doing particular practices, kind of charging up his libidinal energy. And uh, that once it got out, uh, it it was uh, described in a pretty base way. And so put the Theosophical Society and their practices in a not so positive light when it comes to being exposed at pop culture level to society. I definitely recommend you read the book. Now, moving on, next section concerning the aura. Dr. Walter J. Kilner um, did a whole bunch of experiments with a particular kind of dicyanin screen, which uh, specific instruction has, we don't, we don't know how to make it anymore. However, it seemed to consist of dicyanin coal tar dye between two hermetically sealed pieces of glass uh, and a solution that gave the kind of green color to the filter looking through it first in daylight either to desensitize or hypersensitize the eye and then turning the eye on a naked person in dim light before a dark background quote three distinct radiations all laying in the ultraviolet end of the spectrum became visible unquote that's page 130. Ah, but you're saying we don't know how to make it it's anymore. It's so frustrating. What did they look like? Yeah, bro, is there a description? it has gotta be something. First, there was something that was just dark and colorless, and that surrounded the body about a quarter to a half an inch away. Kilner called it the etheric double, like a shadow outline. The second, the inner aura, which is different from the third outer aura, extended about three inches beyond the etheric double, The third outer aura came out just shy of about a foot away from the person. Kilner apparently also found out several interesting things about the aura. Using this screen, he could see auras, and the depth of the aura could be affected by magnets, and is sensitive to electric currents to the point of disappearing under a negative charge and then coming back up to 50% bigger and stronger once the charge dissipated. Uh, The auras were affected by various chemicals. A loss of brilliance of the aura was noted under the effects of hypnosis. Illness would affect both its size and color. With the approach of death, the aura shrinks and gradually disappears, leaving no trace around the corpse. The aura could be affected by an effort of will and be projected to a longer distance from the body and change its shape and colors. Uh, This claim, however, has been known to the peoples of China, India, and Mesopotamia as early as 2500 BC. That's from page 131. That's fascinating to me. He witnessed a kind of auric OBE. Oh, wow. Okay, that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a pretty specific description. <laughs> wow. Bro, this is awesome right now. Like, legit. Auras of uh, different people may show attraction and may be blended and may become more intense by doing so. I try to uh, keep that in the back of my mind whenever I'm really getting along with somebody or whenever I'm really not. I'm like, gee, I wonder how this looks in terms of our auras. Are my auras going, oh, get uh, get out. So it's like, bleh, I don't want to be around here. And then conversely, are my auras like, yo, what's up with this over here? Let's blend and see what happens. My mind's a constant tie-dye show of aura performance. Now, Apparently, sexual arousal expanded the auras, causing them to intensify, sometimes filling the room. And all this comes from Kilner's book, The Human Atmosphere, which was published in 1911. Moving forward a little bit in time, after the atomic age kicked off, it gradually dawned on mankind that the building blocks of reality aren't matter, but are, in fact, energy. So, a question arises, quote, if life forms are fundamentally erected out of energy, why should they only possess sensory systems regarding matter and not possess sensory systems regarding energies?" Unquote. Yeah, what gives? Keep your britches on. He went through this before. Basically, we got two sets of sensing systems, right? One for the matter and physical experience of the world and one for the energetic level, the more foundational or fundamental level of reality. We've talked about this before. Humans as a species, have sexual sensing systems. All right. All right. Quote, if one senses another's sex vibes, then those vibes are emanating from the other person's aura energy fields. In that one is sensing invisible energies, in this case, such sensing is a form of clairvoyance. Albeit this term's not usually applied to the sensing of sex vibes. Unquote. Page 137. Yeah, bro, just got to hang on for the ride. Right, This is so exciting. We also possess emotional sensing systems. You know what it's like to walk into a room after a fight's happened? Yeah. You know what it's like to walk into a room after somebody's cried? Yeah. You know what it's like to walk into a room after they've been talking about you? Do ever? You can feel the emotional flavor, the emotional fabric of the room radiating from energy fields of others. You can sense love, you can sense hate, you can sense acceptance and rejection, danger, approachability, not approachability, imminent illness, death even. This is often referred to as empathy, and it's a form of clairvoyance. Empaths, baby. So auras hold all that info, and probably more in them, making them pretty complex. Wow, who knew? The aura's got a lot going on. No, I kind of already knew that. And it makes sense. Bro, I wonder what my aura's doing now. <laughs> Paracelsus talked about auras. And this is a, a section from page 138. The vital force is not enclosed in man, but radiates around him like a luminous sphere, and it may be made to act at a distance. In these semi-natural rays, the imagination of man may produce diseases, or it may purify it after it has been made impure and restore the health. Our thoughts are simply magnetic emanations, which, escaping from our brains, penetrate into kindred heads and carry thither, with a reflection of our life, the mirage of our secrets. Nice. Oh, that's deep. Paracelsus bringing it. Let's get to I you. appreciate the Paracelsus quote as well. While, yes, you could say you could pick up the aura's info clairvoyantly, it's uh, much more easily digested by simply saying you're picking up vibrations or the vibes of someone. Good vibes, bad vibes. But that is clairvoyance. By 1914, just before the onset of World War I, the theosophists came to some conclusions regarding the aura. Now, here are seven categories or aspects of this entangled manifestation, uh, according to the theosophists, in order of importance. 1. The health auras. 2. The vital animating and energy auras. 3. The emotion, desire, and passion auras. 4. The thought-form auras. 5. The karmic auras. 6. The character auras. 7. The spiritual nature auras. These could also be broken down in at least two subcategories of higher and lower, but come on now, that's crazy. A little deep into the weeds. It is a highly complicated and entangled manifestation consisting of many influences simultaneously operating in the same area. It's not just a luminous cloud around the physical body, it interpenetrated and projected some of its elements from the body, sometimes to great distances. Some of the auric elements didn't even belong to the body, but were coming from or emanating from astral principles. And uh, here astral refers to the first world or a slightly finer level of reality, the second lowest according to ancient traditions. Yes, in the uh, Kabbalistic tree of life, the astral realm is the one that just sits just kind of like on top of and kind of interpenetrates with our physical lived reality. Theosophists described the astral as material but with refined texture, having permanent but bendy, flexible or plastic substance and quality. The emotions, desires, and passions belong to the astral and not the physical body. So, not just gifted, sensitive, talented psychics, but all of us can sense the astral because the astral and the physical interpenetrate. Dreams, accidents some drugs and anesthetics, uh, trauma, revelation, euphoria, all of this might provide an opportunity to access the more subtle sensing of the astral. One point is universally agreed upon. Ignorance of any and all of this contributes big time to all sorts of human and societal difficulty and misery. And that's from page 142. And this will be an abrupt end to another cliffhanger episode on Ingo Swann's psychic sexuality while we're hanging with Mr. Douglas. Stay tuned. Thank you, Mr. Announcer Man. Yes, no, really, I actually am going to be trying to hustle these things out on a more regular basis. (laughs) No promises, but I'm in it to win it. This information is the most important. And I know that just talking about this spreads the word and the psychic awakening capacity like ripples across a stream. Anyway, hang tight. These should be coming out with a little bit more regularity. Right, can I keep going? Yes, you can, Mr. Announcer Man. Okay, so stay tuned. Just uh, do your thing. Thank you. Stay tuned for the next episode of Hangin' with Mr. Douglas. I mean, you hire me for something, I might as well just do it, right?